your world of rugby. This is the official Rugby 365 podcast. Welcome to this week's edition of Rugby 365's podcast. I'm your host, Jan de Koning, and all the way from a special place in Paul. Uh, Lofie Elof sitting in the Lahigenote wine cellar. Eugene, it's a bit early to start celebrating. This is not a celebration. It's just a very neutral, comfortable place from where I can do our part of the podcast. Uh, very exciting and a great history to this wine cellar. Eugene, I also get very relaxed and comfortable uh, near certain beverages. My, mine is slightly different to yours. yours. Your taste is a bit more refined than mine. Mine's a bit rough and tumble with lots of foam on top. But that said, jokes aside, we've got a, a World Cup final coming up uh, and, and that'll be the, the gist of our discussion today. But first of all, uh, briefly before we get into the serious stuff, uh, there's, there's a minor matter of a third place play of that, that game of the World Cup that nobody wants to play and, and teams need to struggle to get up. New Zealand against Wales and I don't know, I know you've played in a few finals and you've won a few finals, but did you ever have to play for a third place and, and, and how do you deal with that? It's a great question, Jan. And you know, I had a quick chat to Adrian last night and a lot of people feel that New Zealand are just going to pull the plug and uh, and just get this over and done with and go home. That's not true. You know, if you still play for a position, even if it's, if it's going for bronze in a third place, you're still playing for something. And the big thing that they're going to play for is for pride. So I can see both these teams coming to the game. Wales, who are the underdogs in that game, going to give it a go to go home with a bronze cup or New Zealand go back home with a bronze cup. So it's not going to be just a game that's going through motions. Young, uh, the coaches prepare the teams as if they're playing a final because if you take something back, you still have something that you can hold on to. It's not a first place, but it's not a last place. That minor match done and dealt with, we move on straight away to the main match, so Africa against England. And we've got uh, a very special person, uh, one of your favorite fly-offs, Andre Paturis, is going to join us in a few moments. But before we get there, it's a simple matter of some match officials. And I think being at the final, I think it's worth touching on it. So I've, I've called Paul Dobson, uh, a decorated, award-winning former referee who works for 365 and who knows refereeing Every year, I mean, it's for 50 years now, every year he passes his refereeing exam. I don't think many people can say that. And Paul's passed his exam this year as well. So let's chat to Paul about the referees with Jerome Garces refing the final. So let's chat to Paul quickly and hear exactly what he has to say about the match officials and the final. Paul, thank you very, very much for joining us on this week's podcast. As always, it's a pleasure and an honor to have somebody of your esteemed uh, knowledge and standing in the refereeing world and, and in rugby in general on our podcast. Oh, that's kind of you. It's too kind in fact. Because all I am is a little old man at the end of Africa now. <laughs> With an immense amount of knowledge, Paul, and, and certainly a good standing in terms of, of refereeing. Paul, I, th I think you've, like all of us, has seen the appointments for the World Cup final. I, I know that in as we speak about the general populace uh, and rugby following, certainly from a South African perspective, uh, it will raise some eyebrows that Jerome Gauss has been appointed the referee for the final. Uh, I know he's not the most popular referee in South Africa, certainly, but these things are supposedly uh, merit-based. So, yeah, I mean, what is your take on it? Yeah, I'm surprised that they, they keep saying that, you know, because I thought that the best referee at the World Cup by some way was Nigel Owens. And I thought his refereeing of that semi-final between New Zealand and England was excellent. A 
gives people a chance to play. There's no missing around on the field. And I was very surprised. Jerome's a good referee and he's got lots of experience. And by the way, he's a very nice man, not that that's particularly relevant. But, you know, there are people who've had complaints about him. Wales have had a huge complaint about the way the, the match against South Africa ended. For example, that's the most recent one. South Africa didn't complain because South Africa won. And, and that very often is the way we judge a referee. Jerome has refereed us 14 times and we've lost 10. As if it's relevant, as if the referee's got to make a team win. The other thing is, that gets me in that is the counting of penalties. It's not the referee who infringes. There are other ways to judge a referee, and they are quite severely judged by people in the know. Having refereed myself many, many years ago, I never thought there was ever any chance to cheat because <laughs> there was so much to do and so much to concentrate on. So I think when referees do get things wrong, it's only by making a mistake, not by cheating. You know, the view is that players make mistakes and referees cheat. That's why I mentioned that, that from a fan perspective, a lot of us, uh, that judgment is, is on emotion and certainly not on in, in terms of, of what they get wrong and right on the field. Like you say so often, uh, they, they certainly get a lot more right than, than they get wrong, same as players and same as coaches. That's how he does well. And congratulate him, you know, and embrace that he's got such an opportunity. Last year, he was in contention for the final, last World Cup. 2015, and was uh, one of the assistants uh, of two Nigel Owens in the final. I'm still surprised, having said all of that, that Nigel isn't doing this in the final. We can understand why guys like Jakub Paper and Wayne Barnes are not in the final, because purely because the, uh, the South Africa are playing and England are playing. So that's obviously the, the thing. But Nigel as well, so, so you know, he would have qualified. That, that also, that said, uh, the the whole setup, I mean, we've got uh, Garces and obviously Romain Poit and, and Ben O'Keefe in New Zealand as his assistants with Benski New Zealand as his TMO. So in, in terms of uh, supposed uh, neutrality, they haven't left themselves with much in terms of who they appoint because there's so many Frenchmen that they were always going to dominate the playoffs. You know, five Frenchmen, you know, because Reese is also there as an assistant, is a lot from any one country at any time, let alone now. And when you see that fellows like, like Glenn Jackson, Mark Fraser, and Marius van der Westhuizen are not there, then you sort of scratch your head in wonder and say, how meritorious is all of this? How merit-based is it all? When it comes to the TMO, for example, in this one, they picked four. Two Englishmen, a South African and a New Zealander. So the only one eligible, if they're going to continue this unattached business, is Ben Keen of New Zealand. So he's the, uh, the TMO. And I think they've limited themselves too much. Uh, and some of it is surprise selection, and uh, that's just my opinion. Paul, finally, before I let you go, I know you've got wonderful grandchildren to attend and... and uh, you, you, you want to try and uh, start uh, preparing yourself for the final, uh, like all of us, uh, getting all excited about the final. But the officials, were, they've, they've got what they call a, a match official selection committee, which comprises of Anthony Buchanan, which is a council member, Joel Judge, Lyndon Bray, Elaine Rolant, which is World Rugby's refereeing boss, and then finally Nick Mallett as a former player. That surprised me. I didn't realize that they, they've got a committee like this with somebody like Nick Mallett in there. 
Yeah, no, he's been there for a while now, a couple of years. I think he was chosen really as an international coach. You know, he's got vast experience in France, Italy, and obviously in, in South Africa and Central World. So he's, he's very experienced as a coach, and, and like all coaches, he's experienced of concentrating on group leagues. And Nick's a, a, an astute man, you know, and he's been a lot involved in rugby. So that doesn't surprise me. Juch was a, a very good test referee. He was then in charge of the International Rugby Board's referees for a while and pulled out because he was away from home too much. And um, Alain Roland is also a former test referee who's partly French, anyway. <laughs> out of Ireland. And he is in charge of World Rugby's referees at the moment. Lyndon Bray is also there. He's the Sanza man. He's in charge of game management for Sanza. And referees fall under him, and he's a former test referee and New Zealander who lives in Australia. Paul, thank you very, very much. It's uh, such a pleasure always and a privilege to have you on, on the podcast. And, and, and really, thank you very much. Thanks, Jan. You're a wonderful man. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, Jan, it's great to hear from a, a legend like uh, Paul. We should not focus too much on the referee. If we're going to focus too much on him, he's going to become the central focus point. I think uh, it's it's done. They've appointed him. They've got their reasons why they did it. I think for us, it's very, very important to focus on the game as a team and not on the ref and how we can approach this game. So he's been appointed. Uh, I know most of the people are not happy, but so be it. We can do nothing to change that. Well, Jean, uh, like you said, let's focus on the game. Let's let's move on straight away. And I think I'm excited to hear what Andre Petour is, a uh, former Springbok flyer in a very good fly, in, in my opinion, very talented player. Now coach of the Leopards. Uh, let's hear what Andre has to say. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for the invite. Nice to be back and chatting to you guys. Coach Luffy, hope you're well. I hope you had a good birthday in the week. And it's a um, special week, especially for, for the Springboks playing in, in the World Cup final. Yes, uh, you know, Andre has been a, is a great young up-and-coming coach in uh, the Leopards area and uh, his technical knowledge of the game is very good. But being a coach, uh, my question, first question to you, Andre, would be if you were Rossi Erasmus, how would you approach the game and how would you take on this formidable English side? Coachy, if I was Rossi at the moment, I'd really put a big focus on picking up the line speed. I'd really have the, the guys come off the line at big pace. If you look at the games prior to this in the rugby championship when Deontay was still playing, you know, he came off, off his wing, he was tackling 12 and 13 in the midfield sometimes, but he really put the guys under pressure. So if if we can get our line speed up so that we cut off that out the back pass from the forwards to the backs, I think we can disrupt their, their natural pattern. Although they've got the ability to probably get around a big line speed, I think we can still make inroads and make them make mistakes under pressure. You know, they've got a really good attacking system and because of the the amount of options that run at the line when they do get go forward ball and quick ball, it's really, really difficult to defend. And then the other thing is, and I know it's probably not, not something you'd want to start during uh, a World Cup final, but if you look at where New Zealand had a certain amount of success in their game, the line breaks came from, from offloads. When New Zealand played their offload game, it was difficult for the for the English defence to handle. And although New Zealand did make mistakes from there, I think we should we should really try and, and beat that first defender. Like Itoji, he shoots out the line. You beat him, you play one offload, two offloads, 
might get in behind them and that puts them at sixes and sevens. And, you know, let's see how they defend when they're under pressure. I don't think we've um, we've really seen that in this in this World Cup, although their defense, like I said, is is good. They've got a good line speed, but sometimes it's a line speed without line integrity, and that gives you an opportunity. My second question is, if you were Eddie Jones, how would you approach this game? How would you outplay or outthink South Africa? Yes, well, when that Russi question was asked, I knew there'd be some form of devil's advocate question coming from Coach Lofi. So, um, so here goes. But... And in no way am I trying to trying to assist the English in beating the box. I truly believe that we'll um, we'll do the job on on the weekend. But uh, this is just answering uh, Coach Lofi's question. First thing is um, double hits because we we don't really pose an offload threat with our one-off runners. I think it's safe to um, to put two tacklers into into those situations and you, you never know, you know, if you if you get to your feet and you start counter-rucking those rucks, you might just sneak one or two and win the ball back. If they play off ten more, then our wide defenders, because of our narrow rush defense, our wide defenders gets involved a lot earlier and which makes us susceptible to, to edge play. If they go to the edge the way they do, then they might get some success there. And lastly, um, you'll see our nines covering the blind, but really wide on the blind. They, they tend to go into the five as a last man or second last man defender. Uh, with them there, I think there's definitely some attacking kick space in behind the rush defense. So don't be surprised to see a, a chip or two into that attacking space. As you know, one of the strengths of this English side is they lose forwards, especially the two young loose forwards who are both fetchers and both carriers. How would you contain them and what would you do to neutralize them? Well, in my opinion, I think this will be one of Rossi and the team's biggest challenges on the weekend. And this is neutralizing these three loose forwards. And you've got a couple of ways of trying to, trying to achieve that. One of them is making them reach. They would have obviously seen the way we play with the Allende. So they target that first ruck. So maybe just set it up, set it up a channel wider, or use the blind more. So you've got to make them reach. They need to be reaching for every single ruck. And once they do get and and reach far enough and do get to the ruck, you need 15 willing Springbok players to put their bodies on the line and win the space over that ball. If it's Underhill, Curry, or Vunipola, doesn't matter who's on their way. If you're supposed to be there or not supposed to be there. You've got to put your body on the line and, and make sure we keep that ball. Because once we neutralize that, it means that we're creating an opportunity for the next phase or two until they are part of it again. Andre, my last question to you is, what is the biggest threat that England would pose for the box that will be the threat that keeps us away from winning the 2019 Rugby World Cup? Coachy, I think that's... It's difficult to say, especially after the um, the New Zealand game and the way they played. You know, their defence is good, but in saying that, New Zealand also made their defence look really good in running into their, their big hitters and where their defence was, they were quite congested where New Zealand ran into. But for me, the their biggest threat is their, their attack and their versatility in their attack. They can build phases for, for quite a while and be really effective with their ball running and, and running onto weak shoulders and presenting quick ball. They can strike when the defense goes soft. They take it to the edges when it's the right time. And then they also, they kick with purpose. It doesn't matter if it's quick or slow ball when there's kick space. 
they kick with purpose and they don't just kick not to have the ball. They kick with a purpose and that to me, their versatility in their attack is where I think England's biggest threat lies. Andre, uh, now that I've finally managed to quieten Luffy down, uh, he's getting very excited, but I suppose most of us are excited. So now that I've finally quietened him down, I want to ask you this, and I know uh, as a former player you will know this, and, and you played in one of these games. When a South African team, when the Springboks are uh, on the underdogs, does it suit the Springbok game? Are the South Africans always better? There's this perception that the Springboks are at their best with their backs to the wall and, and they are the underdogs. This is not a really difficult one. The underdog tag in the World Cup final is always the better seat in the house. England will definitely feel that they've got a better chance of winning this, which will automatically make them feel that they've got more to lose. And that sometimes makes players think about the result or the outcome during the game more so than the processes that they follow to get them there. And if you look at the, the Springboks and the way they've played, it doesn't matter how predictable, but if you listen to Siakulisi, what he said afterwards, they haven't got any gray areas. When they get to a certain part of the field, they know exactly what to do. They know what it's, what's expected. So, you know, you want to give freedom to the players, but in, in pressure times, sometimes the more you minimize decision-making, you put players on the same page and they could be more dangerous than guys that are, are looking for certain triggers to make decisions. So the underdog tag suits us really well at this stage. Andre, finally... Uh from myself, I think this one is a bit more technical. Journalists never get technical. We we ask the cliches, but I, th- I think there's there's this. Uh, uh, Rashi Erasmus has got this six-two split on the bench. He's he's done it for most of the World Cup, for, uh, certainly the key games. Where he's at six-four, it's almost an entire separate pack. So in the second half, he brings on a separate pack. What is your view on, on, on Rassi's playing six forwards and just two backs. You, you know, there's always this risk if you, if you get an injury early in the, in the back line and suddenly you're left with, with only one back reserve and, and, and it makes it a bit tricky. But what, what is your uh, view on Rassi's 6-2 split on, on the bench? Jan, yes. I think Rassi and his management team have probably gone through a number of game scenarios and simulations and this recipe really seems to be working for him. When a coach does go on uh, a 6-2 split like that, it's normally because he really wants to protect his first phases, more so the scrums. Um, if you look at the game against Japan, we were grinding it out, and once we got the ascendancy in the scrums, we started choking them, and you know that, that led to a lot of pressure, got us penalties, and in the end, it, it got us the points. And another reason why we'd, you'd look at something like this, the 6-2 split, is because we're a, a defensive a strong defensive team and we make more tackles than the average than the average side. You want your your tight forwards and your forwards on the park to be fresh when the defense times comes. So he's looking at getting fresh legs on at about 60 65 minutes and keeping up the tempo when it comes to the D and once we do get the ball to make sure that we we physically outmuscle them. Andre thank you very very much again it's such a pleasure. Jens thank you very much. It's been really nice chatting to you and hopefully we get to unite South Africa in the way that we did in 95 and 2007. We've seen some scenes just from winning the semi-final, so um, I'm looking forward to, to one of those days again. Cheers, bye. It's always such a pleasure to have people like Andre on and, and share their vast knowledge with us mere plebs. Absolutely. And uh, I think that, John, that's also what makes this program of us, that keeps it exciting and, and why people really enjoy it. It's to bring that technical know-how and well-known 
people into the, that love the game into the game and into our conversations. Well, Eugene, let's move on to the, the, the game itself. I've got both coaches. I've got uh, Rashi Erasmus and Eddie Jones, and we'll get to them in a minute. But what I want to ask is your view. I mean, you've, you've been in two big junior World Cup finals. In, in a build-up like this, most coaches say it's all mental. You, you've done all your preparation. I mean, the spring has been together for two, three months now. They've played a lot of games. It's a settled team. I can't see Rashi changing anything. I can see our tactics being exactly that. Kick the ball to them. Chase hard. Tackle like demons. Being on on a tour like that and in the World Cup or at a World Cup, that week of preparation to a final feels like a year. It's a time that a coach really needs to be on top of every facet of the preparation, the mental preparation, the physical preparation, the skill set, and mostly also the game plan. But uh, what you said in the beginning is 100% right. It's mental now. And believe me, you you don't have to psych up the players for a final. They are psyched up. So the more you psych them up, uh, the more methodical they're going to be or maybe flat when they run out. So I think that part is a given. You don't want to train too much. You want the guys to be fresh when they run on. So it will most probably be one hard session in the week and also tweaking the few changes that you will bring into the game or maybe a few surprises should we not get control of the game or things are our way that you can pull out of the bag. And then it's just a frame of mind where you want to get the guys that when they run onto that pitch on on Saturday, that you know that you've covered all the bases to give them the best opportunity to win this World Cup. Well, Eugene, uh, you probably will, will hear the coaches talk of, of that. I can, I can hear you, you definitely at your coaching hat on there because you definitely said what, what a lot of the coaches say. So so I think uh, let's move on to, to Rossi Erasmus. I, I think it's uh, worth listening to what Rossi had to say on his team's progress at the World Cup and exactly how he sees the final. We're a team that's been together for... 24 test, 25 test matches, you know, uh, when we have personnel changes like Vagalak Sebu coming in and we do play teams with different styles, we're still in a phase where we suddenly have to adapt. If we play a team like New Zealand with a fast running game, we're used to that. If we play a team like Wales who was a kicking long distance kicking game, it's different for us to try and run from our own 22 and so on. So... Yes, I think he's right. There's definitely some areas in our game which must improve. We want to win. But we've given ourselves a chance. Uh, we've played England four times in the last 18 months. I think it's two all. The two test, three test matches in South Africa and then the last one at Twickenham. So we are accustomed with the way they play. They obviously um, are much better than when we last played them. And you could see it last night when the way they dismantled New Zealand. But, you know, we think we're in with a chance. We've got a six-day turnaround. I'm not 100% sure if a World Cup final is going to be won by a very expansive game plan with wonderful tries. It might be. I might be wrong. But we'll go and the grind it out route. I think we've always had the potential in South Africa to be a force in world rugby. And, and we have always been. You know, even in 2015 when we lost to Japan, we still played in the semi-final, you know, against New Zealand and only lost with two points. In 2011, you know, we lost in a quarter-final against Australia in my opinion, in a, in a quite controversial way. In, in 2007, we won it, you know. In 2009, we were number one in the world. So we were always there and thereabout. But I, I think the way the players in the last two, two and a half years 
took the responsibility of, of being really professional and taking ownership of what it means to be a professional rugby player. I think there was a stage in South Africa when being a professional rugby player was just earning a good paycheck. But I think currently players understand that, listen, if I want to be a professional rugby player, it means I have to work really hard. I can't just move from province to province and earn a good paycheck. And I think that's slowly spreading throughout the provinces and franchises and players are really pushing one, one another. And the whole level of mediocrity is, is going slow out of our rugby. Not that we've achieved anything, but I think we're slowly moving up to the standards of where Ireland are maximising their potential and Scotland are maximising their potential, the same with New Zealand. So overall, I think the, the players deserve a lot of credit for taking a more professional approach towards professional rugby. We don't have the money that England have and we don't have the, we definitely have the player pool. And I think if you go numbers-wise, I think uh, England's got the most players and I think the next number of players is France. And I think then South Africa sitting third or fourth in the amount of player pool, in terms of player pool. But I think in terms of resources, in terms of qualified coaches and, and the resources around player development and player pathways, I think England is definitely right up there. And then obviously in the Premiership rugby, you know, there's, there's rich owners that back their club. So uh, they've got a wonderful system which support them to get players through and keep them in a really professional mindset. So we've got a little bit different challenges in South Africa for different reasons. Obviously, the rand is not the strongest currently if you compare it with the euro and all the other French markets and so on because we had to make a few changes in terms of the regulation and using overseas-based players. Uh, you know, uh, we had to talk to the franchises in terms of getting conditioning standards the same, uh, you know, super rugby coaches working together. And what surprised me is that they quickly bought into the whole system because normally that takes years for them to start working together. And I think that's a positive which we could turn around quickly. But yes, you know, now we're only in the final, so let's see how the, how the final goes. Then we'll only know if we really could turn the corner as much as we did, wanted to. Jan, I can really hear that Rossi is up for this game. He's also very careful picking his words right in terms of the preparation, but also he's got confidence in this team that they can win this World Cup. And that is a very big positive for the coach and the coaching staff that they have belief that this team can go all the way. One thing I want to ask before we get to Eddie Jones, for me personally, there's this, I get this feeling that we're somewhere in the same vein that we had in 1995 and 2007, where the coach very early in his tenure decided on a team and certain players. And I said on, a, on another radio station this week that in 95, Francois Pino was not necessarily the best flank or people, the perception was that Francois Pino was not the best flank. But Kitch Christie trusted in him as a captain. For Kitch Christie, Francois was the captain that the team rallied around. And in 2007, the same with the John Schitt. People, people said, no, Bismarck and this and that and the other thing. And people, the team rallied around John Smith. And, and very early in his tenure, Jake White started building his team around John Smith. So the captain's very important. And we've got uh, CR, and, and I know that uh, CR is getting a lot of flack, especially from the emotional fans, about his game and, and the perception that he's not he's not the best flank and that maybe Francois Lowe should be there or somebody else should be there. But it appears that the team is rallying around Sia. The, the team is gelled together. And Rossi has had this team together now for 18 months. And the core of this team has been together. And I think they've played, I heard the stat the other day, they've played 24 tests or, or 14 tests. I'm talking on the correction here. But they've been together for 18 months. And, they, and the bulk of this team, the core of this team has played together bar one or two test matches against uh, lower teams. 
so the team is gelled around to see her. And, and I get this feeling, and the, and the country is rallying behind. I mean, we've got videos of how the people celebrated the winner over Wales. You get this feeling that the country is rallying behind this team. Yeah, and that's a, yeah, that's a fact. They are behind the team 100%. Uh, you must give Rossi credit that he stuck to his guns. He stuck to his pattern of play. And he's been criticized, you know, about the kicking and, and he backed Faf and he backed uh, the, the players. And that's what a coach should do. And he's, he's backing the players that he's starting with. And that's also a good sign, not to be influenced by the people, what the people think. Because at the end of the day, it's his head on the block. It's not the people. And uh, the funny thing about rugby and going into this final of the World Cup is, if we win it, the guy's going to say, great decision, great captain, great game plan, great mastermind, great uh, using of the subs, everything. And it will be flags up and celebrations. Should we lose it? You will see how it all comes out of the can. Yo, we said this, we said that. But... It's not going to change anything. I just think we must back the team. We must back Rossi now. And hopefully things go our way. It might be a great Saturday. Eugene, maybe now is a good time to turn our attention a bit to England. I think uh, we need to remind ourselves that we're playing a very, very good English team. Eddie Jones is an astute coach. I need to point this out. Eddie Jones was involved in that 2007 win with Jake. You know, He, he was central to that, to that win. He's, he's a mastermind in terms of tactics. And he also knows, I mean, he took Australia to a World Cup final. He won a World Cup with the box. He had a Japan team that beat the Springboks in 2015. So, you know, he's worked on this England team for four years now. There, there was a bit of a wobble last year, but Eddie didn't let that deter him. He, you know, he, he plugged a few gaps. He worked on a few minor things, but largely he stuck to the core of, of his team. They're in the final deservedly and they're favourites in the final. Yes, Jan. I think it's much more than that. I must tell you, in all the years of watching rugby, the performance that England had last week was one of the most clinical, and we've discussed it as well, that I've seen. And this team is a balanced team. But there's one thing you cannot take away from, from this team. First of all, the coaching staff. It's not only Eddie Jones. You know, Eddie has a mastermind of attacking play, of attacking space, of broken play, turnover plays. really a great strategist. But don't take away the influence of uh, John Mitchell. So what I think, what I know is they've got unbelievable rugby IQ in that management. John is responsible for the, um, for the breakdowns and for the defense and they are lethal there. So use them as a core. They are definitely emotional up for this. If you look at the team itself, they are just a, a balanced team. They are all-round team that can, they've got so variation, so much variation in their play. They can up the tempo, they can slow it down, they can do the slow poison thing that they do. And they got good decision-making. But this, as great as that team is, I've seen great teams. And I mean, in history of rugby fall uh, against teams that are not so great. So we're going into this as the underdogs. It's a very difficult one to call. But I think mentally, we've got a team that believes they can beat England. And we might not man-to-man be where they are now, where they were last week. But this weekend coming, we might just speak and be the team that can beat this formidable English side. But it's going to take a huge effort for 80 minutes. And we need to have a backup plan if our A plan doesn't work. Eugene, there's one thing you touched briefly on it, but I think it needs to be highlighted. The England team have at the core of the, and, and you mentioned John Mitchell and you mentioned Eddie, at the core of their coaching staff, they've got two guys who were within the grasp of South Africa. In fact, both of them worked for, for South Africa. And for some other reason, people didn't fight hard enough to keep them here. You know, we remember that Rainer Banner had to give his Springbok blazer to Eddie Jones after the 2007 World Cup because some bright spark in South Africa rugby thought it wasn't, Eddie wasn't really part of the team and he didn't want to give him a, a Springbok blazer, which was ridiculous. That's how 
bad it is. And Eddie eventually slipped out of our grasp. He, he came back and he, and he had like a two-week spell at Western Promise. And again, people didn't fight hard enough to keep him. And England's got him. John Mitchell coached the Bulls. And as much as they struggled and, and people say, you know, he was involved with the Lions. And, and John loves South Africa. He, he, you know, he came here because he loves this country. He's got a wife and all her families in Durban. He would have loved to stay, and, and we could have had him involved in the Springbok setup. You know, he could have helped Rossi. There's a lot that we could have done, and, and again, we didn't fight hard enough to keep them. So I'm not going to say that that they have something to prove, because they, they've already proven more than they need to. The, the fact is, uh, we had these people within our grasp, and we lost the opportunity to keep them involved in the African coaching structures. That as it, as it may, uh, let's move on to Eddie, and, and hear what Eddie Jones has to say on what's a, what awaits in the final, and what he expects from the Springboks. Players understand they haven't done anything yet. The most important week's coming up and we're, we're excited to be here. You know, the only thing I sense is excitement about what the team can achieve this week. We're looking forward to playing against South Africa now. Well, the only thing we're really worried about is how the Springboks turn up on Saturday. You know, they won a tough semi-final. And when you're in the final of the World Cup, you've done a lot of good things right. You know, they're a massively aggressive, physical forward pack. They probably play their stronger team in the second half as opposed to the first half. And they're going to be a difficult side to beat. But uh, we're going to enjoy the preparation this week, get ourselves right. We know a couple of areas that we think we can expose in them. And we'll make sure we're well prepared in those areas. You know, you give the country something to cheer about. With Brexit at the, at the moment, they probably need something to cheer about. So, you know, it's a, a job of the team to make the country happy. And we've made the country happy, not as happy as they can be, because there's still a game to go, as we said, but it's a great way. And the crowds here generally at the World Cup have been fantastic. I thought our supporters on, on Saturday night were massively instrumental in helping us get home. They're singing, their general support of the team's been outstanding, and we urge them to keep doing that. We're excited about the prospect. We know the final comes with pressure, but we're excited about handling that. And we feel that's an advantage we've got. Russ is a, a cunning coach. He's a very good coach. He's done a great job with the Springboks. And, yeah, we're prepared for the unexpected. They can play different ways. Yeah, you saw last night Faf de Klerk probably do 15 to 20 box kicks in the game. But we know Pollard's an excellent kicker of the ball. And the way he goal kicked last night was fantastic. You know, he was smooth, he had nice touch on the ball and, and that's a wonderful advantage for them. So we know they can play differently and we're aware of that, but we also know they're going to come through the front door. There's not too many uh, Springbok teams you play against that don't come through the front door. So we're going to be ready at the front door and have enough to cover the back door if it so, if it so happens. Yes, I think besides them that they lost for us, so we could not compete with a pound, not at all, not even close. If you look at the financials of rugby in our country, we could not compare with that. But I think the biggest factor is that they understand both of them, do understand the culture of our rugby, both of them, and know most of the players that they are playing against. So, so they've got a slight edge, but Jan, as I said, it boils down to Saturday, 80 minutes, sometimes goes your way sometimes it doesn't all i know i'm excited and i'm gonna back the box this weekend regardless of who the ref is or what anybody says eugene before i let you go to enjoy your environment your peaceful environment i have to ask you your winner and the margin Jan, why are you doing that we should not predict okay i'm going to tell you that my heart says that the box are going to win it's going to be a close game and it's going to be a margin of two 
my brain says if you go on statistics that England should win it. But I know the fighting spirit that we South Africans have. And winning the World Cup this year will be a fantastic thing for our country who's looking for something positive. Well, Eugene, personally, I think it's going to be between three and five points. It's going to be a one-score margin right at the end. And I wouldn't be surprised if we even go into extra time. That's how I see it. I see it's going to be. And, and don't expect, uh, I know there will be moments in the game where there'll be exciting things and there'll be flash things, but I don't expect fancy. I think it's going to be a lot of defense, a lot of kicking, especially from South Africa. And I think, let's hope, Andre Pollard slots a late drop goal to win it for us by three points. That's me. That's uh, what I feel. And with that, I, I think it's a good time to say from myself, Jan de Koning. And Lofi Elof. Enjoy the week. Enjoy the rest of the build up. Enjoy the final and chat next week. Prost.